0: If you entertain the notion that there is such a thing as evil or that bad exists in the world, that it's always going to appear that way on its surface. When really, if there is such a thing as evil, it really doesn't care about what rules you play by, except to the extent that those rules can be used to fulfill its bidding. And so the the desire to be a good person or to be approved of, to belong, to be loved, I mean, these are such deeply compelling desires as humans, and they make us really vulnerable.
1: You must be some kind of therapist.
0: I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in what you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Nguyen, a licensed marriage and family therapist branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. All right, today I'm so excited to welcome to my podcast Dr. Roberta Shaler. I have been following her work for years now. Uh, first, the Emotional Savvy podcast and then Save Your Sanity. Um, Dr. Shaler specializes in helping people with relationship issues, especially helping people learn to recognize um, manipulative traits and recover their self-esteem. Um, that's that's a big part of what I've gotten out of listening to her podcast. Um, so Dr. Roberta Shaler, welcome
1: and thank you for coming. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I'm glad that you got something from my podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I actually focus on helping the partners, the exes, the adult children, mm. and siblings of relentlessly difficult people I call hijackles, mm. And hijackles are people who hijack relationships for their own needs and purposes and then relentlessly scavenge them for power, status, and control.
0: Oh, that is quite a nugget. You've really honed in on what exactly you do, and I love that you coined this term, hijackals. It's It conveys so much, and there's a playfulness and a directness to it at the same
1: time. Well, the reason I did it, Stephanie, was there are too many people in pain going to the internet and then deciding that they can diagnose someone with a personality disorder, mm. We just needed a term to say, hey, I'm in this relationship. It doesn't feel good. Um, What kind of person am I with? Mm -hmm. So we could talk about the patterns, traits, and cycles without trying to be an armchair diagnostician. Mm -hmm. And that's important. Because if we start seeing our our partner as a narcissist or a sociopath or a psychopath, and we've decided that, then we treat them differently, and we forget that we're part of the equation. Mm. We're in the relationship with them. So if I just say, "Well, I'm in a hijackle relationship," and because I trademark that term, I have so many interesting times. Someone wrote me the other day and said, "I think I'm being hijacked." You know, we started to morph the word, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is kind of fun too. But mm-hmm. but to really understand that those patterns, traits, and cycles exist, and then I have recently been—I just let a, a, a released a ebook called "What Healthy Love Is and How to Know If You Have It," mm. because the, we need the balancing effect of the other side to really understand what we're aiming at, not always be focused on what we're in or are endeavoring to leave. Mm -hmm. So that's another very important part of the work, to know what a healthy love is so that you can calibrate whether or not you're experiencing that. And the next part of that, I have a three-phase program for getting out of emotional abuse. And so then we work on that.
0: I love that, that you give this distinction that it's not necessary to diagnose or label a personality disorder in order to identify and validate your own experience of how you're being treated. Um, one of the phrases I remember hearing from you is believe behavior, right? So it's always
1: believe behavior.
0: <laughs> I see you doing the work of helping people cultivate
1: discernment. Yeah, it's really important. I call it the realization phase. It's when you realize that I really need to have an in-depth look here and not keep glossing over the surface and saying, well, it's okay enough or I don't have time to do it or I'll just give in, but to actually say, I am being emotionally abused and to know how to see that and to know how to let that message in because no one wants to say oh I am I am letting myself be abused but if we begin by saying this is emotionally abusive mm-hmm. and if we've had parents who are emotionally abusive it'll be so familiar to us even though we're comfortably uncomfortable it'll be too familiar to think it could be different And that's a really important distinction. Right. And
0: I imagine that's why it's so important to do this other part of your work of identifying what healthy love is because a lot of folks who end up in these kind of relationships might have never had um, positive examples in the home growing up or previous relationships. And so there is that sense of this is normal. And it's also so normal Mm -hmm. to blame ourselves and look within, right? If someone is repeatedly getting rageful with us, the the natural response to that is to go, what did, what did I do to deserve this? And then the pattern just deepens over time. And what I love about what you're saying is that you're not excusing the listener of their responsibility to recognizing their part in the dynamic, but you're also not encouraging self-blame
1: or the idea that that I deserve this. Absolutely. And it's an important distinction. And until you realize something, you can't do anything about it. You can be uncomfortable, you can be unhappy, but until you say, I don't want to be uncomfortable and unhappy anymore, Mm -hmm. then the work begins. Because maybe you've always been uncomfortable and unhappy, and you didn't really think about it as anything out of the normal. Mm-hmm. And it's important for us to realize that we deserve healthy love. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean deserved, you know, just because we're breathing. Um I do think everybody deserves respect and and deserves to have our trust until they prove that they are untrustworthy. But to really say that I have the I have the right to say, this is not okay with me. Mm -hmm. It's just not okay with me. And when I say that, then I can begin the work to say, if this isn't okay with me, what do I want? What do I want to move toward, and what do I want to move away from, and why? Mm -hmm. So that's all part of just coming to that realization that life could be better than this, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I want it that way.
0: Mm -hmm. And what you're describing, in some ways, is so... Simple. It helps people find their true north. My experience of working with people in difficult relationships is that things get so complicated trying to sort out the behavior in it. And that discernment phase is really important, but also just finding that center that says, How do I want to feel in my life? I want to yeah. feel happy calm, safe. If, if I'm approaching my partner or my parent, I, I want to be treated in good faith. Um, I don't want every single thing in my life to feel like a struggle. And just being able to identify how do I want to feel in my life can, I think, help people sort out the chaos because it's it's drawing that intention within.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's it's an important distinction, as you said, to say, I have the right to be happy, but happiness is my job. And if I've been looking to somebody else to produce happiness within me or to create happiness for me, I'm on the wrong path Mm -hmm. because happiness is an inside job. So if I'm uncomfortable, if I feel like I am getting the dregs of somebody's love or attention, then I need to recognize it. I talk about it all the time. If you, are, if you are mistaking breadcrumbs for a full meal and you've been used to doing that for your lifetime, then let's wake up and say, I'm not being nourished. Mm-hmm. I am not getting enough food. I am half-starved all the time. And when we're emotionally starved, we tend to behave in ways that are somewhat unhealthy. So if I can be self-reflective and say, I'm starving over here, Mm -hmm. what is causing it? Am I shutting off my food sources or are they not available to me? Mm -hmm. And then we begin the journey of discovery and things can change. Mm -hmm.
0: So what do you say to people who are very empathetic and find themselves in these unfulfilling relationships where on the one hand they can acknowledge, I'm not getting what I need. I'm starving emotionally. But on the other hand, their tendency is always to say, well, but my partner acts this way because this happened to them in childhood. This is how their parents treated them. Or they're always going toward empathy for the other person, even at the expense Mm -hmm. of their own needs. How do you respond to that?
1: We have work to do. (laughs) (laughs) Because if we are not in a reciprocal relationship, I talk about it all the time on the podcast. The three must haves of have a healthy adult relationship you must have equality, you must have reciprocity, and you must have mutuality. What you were describing right there, the person has been taking less than that. Mm-hmm. For a long time, probably. And so, first of all, they have to know that those are the must-haves of a healthy relationship. And if you don't have them, you're already in a deficit. So if you are overly—thinking you're overly empathetic, (laughs) because that's what good people do, that's what nice people do, Mm -hmm. um, you're giving yourself away to something. And if you actually calibrate it, Stephanie, you'll find that they are getting— way more than you're getting, and they keep on taking, Mm -hmm. then we have to wake up and smell the herbal tea, you know, (laughs) that this is not okay on any level, that there is inequity, there is lack of reciprocity, and there's certainly no mutuality. And those are the absolute bedrock of any healthy adult relationship. Mm -hmm. And then over that, You know, In my book, Kaizen for Couples, I talk about the relational gifts, and you have to have them to give them, so you have to have them in your relationship with yourself, and those are honesty, safety, trust, respect, and reliability. And if they're not present, I don't care how great the sex is or how much you think you should love them, you really have to have a look and say, is this viable relationship where both people are being nurtured and nourished? And if it isn't, then fix the relationship or give your head a shake, do some self-reflection and say, this is not enough for me. Mm.
0: Do you think that people who have been in this kind of emotionally malnourished position for a long time, maybe as long as they remember, do you think they develop kind of an emotional anorexia where it's it's hard to think about taking in more nourishment? The instinct is to not
1: I actually write about emotional anorexia, Mm. Um, so it's great that you asked the question. It's what we get used to. You know, if we have parents who didn't have love to give, we're used to getting breadcrumbs instead of a full meal. And then we think, because of our brain development in the first five, six years, we think that's all we deserve because it's all we've known and up until we're five or six years old, as you well know, Stephanie, we're just basically a little sacks of vibrating nerve endings, and they're all emotional. <laughs> um, so we're taking in, am I okay? We develop our attachment style. We develop our propensity for allowing these kinds of relationships in our life. Um, we also have in that time period when we develop the seeds of personality disorder. So so much is happening before we even had language. We don't even know. We've just taken it all in and say, "All right, this is life. This is my life." And so when we're wise enough to stand back and say, "This isn't all there is. There is more. Let's go f- explore. Find it." Right? What could what could life look like? And what does a satisfying mutual a relationship look like, and wow, could I have that? Mm. Yeah, you can, but you have to ask for it. In some cases, you have to demand it. And when it's not available, you have to walk away from it.
0: Mm. What do you say when people are in a position where it's like they're constantly moving toward the carrot. It always feels like, oh, just around the next bend, my partner will start loving me when they get over this thing or I help them enough with that thing. We just have to work out this one more problem.
1: What do I say? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> no. Just no. I mean, that that's a game. That's a game you do not want to face what's really going on. So you're hooked on hope. And I talk about hooked on hope a lot. Because you always think, well, it'll get better. They're under stress. They had a poor childhood, as you said. They're at stress at work. They're not feeling well right now. They're not at their full capacity. You know, oh, the poor dear. So I lean in more. And every time I lean in, I am on danger of falling, right? Mm-hmm. I am on t- tippy toes and they're and I'm on life support and they're getting everything that I have. Mm-hmm. And you start looking at those equations, then maybe you will Give your head a shake and say, There's something really off here. Mm-hmm. The more that I'm I give, and if you're dealing with a toxic person, a hijack call, they are in the business of taking as much as they possibly can and giving as little. Mm-hmm. So that equation will be perpetuated. And that's very important to recognize, because their deal is always quote unquote winning. So in any conversation, at any time, it's what's in it for me and how can I get the most. Mm -hmm. And so you will always be at a deficit when you're with these people. So you have to rebuild yourself. That's why I call my community Emerging Empowered. Mm -hmm. Because even if you're in the worst of it right now, you can do work. You may not be ready to leave, but you can do a lot of work to start Emerging Empowered in a daily way. And over time, then you can make the decision what you're going to do. I'm just writing a new program. It's called uh, Executing My Exit. And it is about going from deciding to doing and all the pieces in between so that we can actually understand how we've been keeping ourselves limited even in the way that we approach the thoughts of what we have to do or what is possible to do, and we then, oh, no, that's too much. Mm -hmm. And in response to your question, oh, well, maybe if I just stay a little longer. You can say that forever, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then, you know, I've had many clients, have clients all around the world, and they'll say, I've been in this marriage 30 years. Nothing's changing. Well, let's see. After the first year, maybe the second year, things started to change. But if we use that urban myth, how to cook a frog, you put the frog in a pot of cold water and you slowly turn up the heat, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what happens in the relationship. And eventually you come to a place of saying, it's, it's, I'm just about cooked here. Mm -hmm. And then I'm, what do I do? How do I get out of this pot? And do I deserve to get out of this pot? Or am I just going to say, oh, it's all right. Just keep turning up the heat. Mm -hmm. It's okay. I know you need to. (laughs) And no, that's just saying, go ahead and abuse me.
0: Mm -hmm. I think the frog in the pot is such a good analogy because there are so many misconceptions about how these types of emotionally abusive relationships work. And I think if you've never been in one, then your thought process is, well, why would she let him treat her that way or he let her treat him that way? Whatever it is, uh, you know, we think if I were in that position, I'd just get up and leave. What's, what's wrong with this person? Do they have no self-esteem? Um, yeah. Until you're actually in that situation, uh, unfortunately, which some people do find themselves in. I know I've been there where it does ramp up over time. I think there are misconceptions sure. about emotionally abusive relationships. It usually starts, often starts with the love bombing and where someone's deepest insecurities and desires are appealed to. And then, the you know, you talk about how the love gets less and less frequent and the, the backlash and the abuse and all of that becomes more and more frequent and that process over time really affects people psychologically. It affects their sense of reality. Mm-hmm. It affects their social supports, their connection with the things that used to give their lives meaning and fulfillment. So I think it's a wise analogy to use. And my understanding, too, part of part of the frog in the pot getting cooked slowly over time is that, that the, the warmth kind of induces this kind of stupor. This place where you can't think clearly, which reminds me of how you talk about being in the fog of fear, obligation, and guilt. Mm -hmm. So how do people learn to recognize that when they're in
1: it and they've been in it for so long? Well, often one of the great indicators will be that their health starts to go. You know, Mm -hmm. when we live under chronic stress, which you do when you're with a toxic person, it is really damaging to your body. And there's lots of research to show that. You know, the um, book by Dr. Gabriel um when um, it's right here, so you, when the body says no, right? Um, and then you you go the body saying no uh, and then you think oh well no I you know I, I'm just in this situation and it happens to all kinds of people well hopefully you'll you'll sit up and say if I'm having something that's kind of a particularly a chronic situation I'm developing something that's uh, inflammatory based mm-hmm. what's going on in my relationship? Mm-hmm. Because there's heat, right? That's mm-hmm. what creates the inflammation. Mm-hmm. There's heat happening. And am I am I, so overcooked, c- if you like, <laughs> the water has gotten too hot? Um, then I, something gets your attention. When you really can't be complacent anymore or you're mm-hmm. going to get less mm-hmm. healthy, then perhaps that's one good wake-up call. Mm-hmm. But I have seen too many people who have that happen to them and they they say and my partner doesn't even care that my health is deteriorating. Of course they don't care because you don't make them look good. You don't make them the hero. Um, they don't want to take care of you. You're not you know it's not about them anymore. It's about you. Mm-hmm. And so it just gets worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. So it's extremely important to recognize that if you have a health issue come along, Mm, better perk up, right? And say, what does this have to do with my emotional Mm well-being? I used to own a retreat center where I dealt with um, offering a lot of things to help people and a lot of modalities as well as having my practice there. And so many times, like about 70% of my people were people with life threatening illnesses that would come and that would be in my practice. And for them, it was such a big deal to actually allow themselves to see what they had been allowing themselves to live within.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Because they would take it on. Oh, I'm not going to be any use to him mm-hmm. or her anymore, and I can't do all the things I used to do for them. And of course, the toxic person, the hijacker, would never straighten up. Would never come to the party and be fully involved and take care of their partner. You know, I've had clients, and I am—you may have as well, Stephanie—where they come to me and they say, "I had COVID so badly, and my partner wouldn't take me for testing." Mm-hmm you know, you'll get over it. You'll get over it. You you know, too much trouble to focus on you for a minute. Mm -hmm. And worse things, worse, terrible things that have happened to people and their partners who are so toxic would not give them the time of day Mm -hmm. because they weren't making them look good and they weren't meeting their own needs. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't, It wouldn't have anything to do. And so if you notice that, it's very incremental, Mm. as we've been talking about before using the frog metaphor, but it's very incremental how the heat gets turned up. And then, then they do something overtly physical. They either rage or they throw something or worse, they'll hurt you. And then if you are really stuck in this dynamic, you will say, oh, look what I made them do. No, 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 no. You didn't make them do it. That's a choice that they made. And we have to clarify that. You can't make anybody angry. They choose what they do with that boundary or whatever it is that was crossed. They just, they choose how they give voice to that or expression of it. It's not you. You know, we've all been angry mm-hmm. and not hit somebody. <laughs> you know, we've mm-hmm. all been angry and been able to have scars on our tongue because we didn't say what came to our mind first. Mm-hmm. You can learn to control that. Mm-hmm. And people who are high tackles don't, mm-hmm. they just don't. And then they're very conniving, they think they're the smartest person in every room. So they think they always have power over you and they can make you do things. And then they can belittle you into thinking that getting ill is your fault, mm-hmm. right? Take no responsibility for the pressure and anxiety that they're constantly creating. I see a couple of problems
0: when it comes to the subject of health and illness. And One of them is that when you're in an abusive relationship, part of how you get by is by disassociating not feeling your actual felt sensations. So health problems have to reach more of a crisis then, than they would for someone who was more in touch with their body because they felt safe. And I also think about how um, some of these hijackles use our sympathy for their illness and they play up some kind of chronic condition or... If the partner has a condition, that's when they will have some kind of illness that's that's a bigger deal because like you said, it always has to be about them.
1: So there's a competitiveness. The yeah. Oh, big, big competitiveness. You know, and, and also they'll fabricate things. I've had clients whose partners created GoFundMe accounts for a mythical cancer that diagnosis that never happened. Mm. But to keep themselves front and center in the spotlight all the time, they then complain in that way, right? Mm-hmm. Um it, it is it's it's very sneaky mm-hmm. stuff. It's tricky because it manipulates our sympathies.
0: Like you talk about being being a good person, right? And a good person is sympathetic to illness. Um I was in that situation when I was in an abusive relationship. My uh, partner at the time claimed to have Lyme disease, which is a very mysterious yeah. illness and can right. can have any impact. So it was tough in my experience um, personally, and it's also been tough for the people I've worked with when the partner either has a real condition or maybe a condition that they play up or a condition that's fabricated. Um, as well sometimes hand in hand with that or sometimes separately if they have a mental health condition or some kind of reason why they can't work right and then and then the partner feels obligated to take care of
1: them and it can be hard to because they're a good person yeah <laughs> Right, The partner wants to be a good person, mm-hmm. and good people do that. Good, mm-hmm. And so we lose all contact with the balance between compassion for self and compassion for others. And that balance has to be maintained in a healthy person. So we have to be calibrating that all the time. And many times that gets totally tipped, as you're saying, Stephanie. And the person is saying, How dare you? I'm so ill. I can't do it. What do you expect from me? How how can you possibly be this outrageous person who won't take care of me? Mm-hmm. You're not even a nice person. You could tell that because you're not here all the time. You're not giving me everything that I want. And that's very typical of hijackers, because they only want you f- to use you, basically. Anything that looks like love is usually coming from cognitive empathy, mm-hmm. where they think, "What do I have to do to keep this person around?" <laughs> you know, um, so they look, "What do other people do? Mm-hmm. What's the look on other people's face? Let me see if I can mimic caring,
0: just long enough to keep them sad. around."
1: Yes, just long enough. Absolutely right. Like, Beckon you back with, okay, let's give it another shot. Mm -hmm. We got through that one. And if you find yourself in that situation and you're listening today, know that you need to recognize the patterns. They're counting on you not recognizing the patterns. They want to have the interaction in this moment because they only can win in this moment. So if you say, well, two weeks ago you said something opposite of what you're saying right now, they'd say, I'm talking about right now. It doesn't matter what happened in the past. And you re- you, mem- you remember that incorrectly anyway, because of course you do. That's mm-hmm. what you always do. And so we're getting dialogue like that. And a person who is empathetic or a person who's been worn down and torn down enough, well, oh yeah, I'm the problem. It's my fault. I, you know, I'm not worthy of this relationship. I'm obviously not a nice person. I'm obviously not a good person. I think one of the most deleterious phrases that we have in the English language is "give until it hurts," mm. because somehow that's supposed to make you into a good person that you give until it hurts. Well, everybody would be hurting if that were the case, and and if we've bought into that kind of idea that sacrifice is important well beyond compromise sacrifice makes me better makes me more loving more empathetic a hijock will always take advantage of that
0: i hope you've been enjoying this episode of you must be some kind of therapist podcast if you like what you're hearing now's a great time to like subscribe follow rate review or share You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. I think it's so important what you say about uh, our desire to be a good person and to be seen as a good person. Um. I've been thinking and writing about uh, this idea that the devil doesn't care about your morals, uh, because yeah. if if you are to entertain the notion that there is good and evil, regardless of whether that fits in any particular religious context, um, when you think about the kind of caricatures of forces of evil, they're always the bad guys, the super villains, and they look really scary, and everything about them screams "stay away, danger." But in reality, that's not what evil actually looks like. I think evil looks more like the wolf in sheep's clothing, little Red Riding Hood and the big bad wolf disguising himself as grandma. And uh, there's, I think, this kind of naivete to think that if you entertain the notion that there is such a thing as evil or that bad exists in the world, that it's always going to appear that way on its surface when really... If there is such a thing as evil, it really doesn't care about what rules you play by except to the extent that those rules can be used to fulfill its bidding. And so the, the desire to be a good person or to be approved of, to belong, to be loved, I mean, these are such deeply compelling desires as humans, and they make us really vulnerable. And mm-hmm. it's it's hard to come out of that. One of, one of the tools I use, and I, I think I've heard you say some things Along these lines is is helping people distinguish their values from other people's beha- values, right? And when you talk about believe behavior, okay, if we're looking at this rationally, which is hard to do when your emotions are caught up in it, but if we really look at this objectively, mm-hmm. what does this person's behavior tell us about what their values are? Not what they say their values are, but, but what their behavior reflects their values might be, because it could be that if if you look at the two of you, you see that you are driven to be a good and generous person. You're driven to be fair-minded, give others the benefit of the doubt, question yourself, evolve, learn, grow, be cooperative with your partner. Those are your values. And they say good things about you. Does your partner's mm-hmm. behavior say that they value those same things? If you take the words away and you look at their actions and how they make you feel, and if not, what what does their behavior communicate over time. And then how can you look at that without your whole worldview crumbling into cynicism? I think that's that's another trouble people have, right? If 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 I can't trust this person or I can't trust all the people I've known who I've had this dynamic with, then is there any good in the world? It seems like a tough balance to strike what you do by maintaining hope, but also having a realistic attitude about things that are disturbing.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely true. And you know, you've made reference to my phrase, always believe behavior. It's something that I think is absolutely key for every single human. And I tell people, you know, etch it in the inside of your forehead, so it's always right there. A-B-B, always believe behavior, because if you do that, it'll stand you in greater stead. You will have fewer opportunities to say, why didn't I see this? Because behavior is your belief. That's my opinion. How you behave is your real belief. The words, if they happen to match, great. But if you don't believe their behavior and you want to allow words to Cover it up. That's just wishful thinking on your part. You have to come to the nitty gritty of really observing their behavior. Maybe they're cold hearted. Maybe they're dismissive. Maybe they actually go out of their way to be rude and punishing and disrespectful. And those are patterns. It's not anything to do with you. Look at them over there. You know, I don't know this person. Here's all their behaviors. Now, what do I think? as opposed to what I really want them to like me or I don't want them to leave me or whatever our needs and wants are, then we can examine, say, all right, things are not so good when I look at their behavior. Let me look at why am I thinking about this in the way that I am. How could I look at this differently? That's where you need help because you get trapped in that paradigm and someone who is a trained therapist can help you by asking the right questions to see it differently and to open that up over time because maybe your parent treated you that way. Maybe that's the experience, as you say, that you have built up in the world and then you get a little, say, oh, well, nobody likes me. Or, I'm not worthy of having a relationship. So, we may not go to cynicism in the evil or non evil situation, but we may just come to that place of it's all, it's, I'm terrible. I'm not worthy of things. And when we use the term evil, I don't like to use it at all, but there is a percentage of the population, very small, that really does incarnate evil. Um, And those are the people that are psychopathic in nature, and particularly the ones who have the dark triad. So they're going to be narcissistic, they're going to be psychopathic, and they're going to be Machiavellian, and they don't care what they have to do to get their needs met. And I think if there is a person that could be labeled as evil, you'll find them in that group. Mm-hmm. right and if you're with that they have told you all the time how worthless you are they've played the game they have played the uh, anxious versus avoidant um push and pull dynamic to the place where it's come closer, go away, come closer, go away. If you come too close, I'll send you away. If you go away, I'll pull you back because I won't have you leaving me. And we get into that total dynamic. And that can really be the thing that causes you to be stuck in the fog. The fear, obligation, and guilt that Susan Forward spoke about in her early book on emotional blackmail, you know, to to really realize if you're always feeling fear, obligation, and guilt, step back from that and say, really? Is that the way that I a climate in which I should live or be pushed into all the time? And examine that, because it, it is terrible. You know, last week, I had a client whose husband raped her. And um, I have a client just in one week, you know, who, who took... A, They have supervised, she supervises the visit with the child and met in a park, public place. You know, I always tell people to make sure to do that, preferably take someone with you. But he would take the baby out of her arms and then he would run around the fountain and say, oh, I'm not going to keep her. I'm not going to hurt her, but I could right now. I could right now. This behavior is going on. Um, Another Man, as it turned out, who just raged to the point of the children were petrified, and now my client's in a safe home. Um, this is real stuff. We really have to say this is real stuff. None of these women that I was happened to speak about, but there are equal number of male, hij- male and female hijackles. Each of these women was doing the best that they could in order to placate or to keep the peace or to take on the blame, but it still exacerbated to terrible places. Terrible places. I had a client 20 years ago worked with her. She'd been divorced for five years and had a new relationship, and the ex was impinging on the new relationship, so it was helping them find strategies to straighten this out. And I opened the newspaper and found that this fellow who had claimed that he needed more and more time with his children was always taking her to court, always claiming that he didn't have enough time with the children. He walked into where she worked, shot her between the eyes, and killed himself. That's how much he cared about the children. He left them orphaned. So watch what you believe when people like this say things to you, and preferably wake up early <laughs> and look at these patterns and say, am I really pushing these buttons, or is this all in that other person? Mm-hmm. And get some help, because it's really hard to figure out if you don't get some help with people who can ask you good questions mm-hmm. and help you see the patterns.
0: Mm-hmm. So just in the last few minutes, you described this extreme end of the spectrum of how horrible abuse can really be, and that's one of those situations where, unless you've dealt with it or supported someone you care about dealing with it, it's hard to imagine that someone capable of murder could also be capable of the things that come before that, that, that ramp up to that situation. But you also described earlier the anxious avoidant dance, and I think about how there are plenty of relationships that aren't toxic per se, and you're not dealing with a hijackal, but where people end up in that anxious avoidant dance. You know, that's a lot of my work in couples counseling, and, you know, maybe I'll do a separate episode on attachment theory and, and what those terms mean, but I'm curious, you have people coming to you in all stages of questioning their relationships, and I'm imagining that you do have maybe some people on that end of the spectrum where they're trying to sort out, is this a hijackle, or do I just have anxious attachment and my partner doesn't have the greatest communication skills? So how do you help people discern? Are, are there times that you say, you know, I think that this is not necessarily a toxic person, that there may be some things you can work on? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, absolutely. It um, It happens you know listening very carefully watching the patterns over time how frequently the patterns occur what level of stress is happening at that moment how did the person respond to the level of stress um, all of those pieces need to be taken into consideration before you abso- i absolutely can say I think you're in a toxic situation. I think that you're with a hijackal. And when I say absolutely, all I can do, like any other therapist, is take what you've told me and believe that you're experiencing that, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But many times they'll say, well, can I bring the potential hijackal in? Then I get to see the behaviors as well, which can help me realize that the person is— you know, it, it's some kind of interactive problem that that is occurring, or it is a situation where uh, the person is not telling me the whole truth or what's mm-hmm. going on. But generally, people have listened to the podcast or watched the YouTube channel to the degree that they already are very, very much in the question of, I don't think that, that I'm wrong. <laughs> so they're looking for validation of what's happening and then by looking at the patterns and asking them all the questions. I also have on my website there's a a checklist that you can do for free and it's Am I in a toxic relationship? So that's a good starting point to go and say, mm-hmm. Ah, you know, maybe it's your mother, maybe it's your partner, maybe it's your Your sibling, maybe it's some other adult at work or whatever. But it's really important to start there to say, yeah, I think I am. I think this is a toxic relationship. And in that case, I'm not taking full responsibility for anything but my part in it because I'm not going to accept that I have to make excuses for this person or I have to make allowances for their poor choices or bad behavior or cruelty. Mm -hmm. And how do I get to say no?
0: I think a lot of people struggle with that. What's my part in this? Kind of to to such a degree that they're really procrastinating on taking action. And I think sometimes that that insight of what's my part in this, the, the realization is just, oh, I need to go. That's what I need to do. Um, but it's but it's hard. There's, I imagine there's a kind of grieving process that folks are delaying sometimes because it's very sobering to come to that realization. And there's sort of that, um, you know, the sunken cost fallacy, the the advice, don't throw good money after bad. Well, when you've invested a whole lot of yourself, your hopes, dreams, time, money into trying to make something work, it's really hard Mm -hmm. to arrive at that sobering realization that I'd better cut my losses. It's better to walk away from all this now and not get anything out of it than to continue investing myself in it
1: hmm and, and when you invest and you're constantly getting a negative return, then you get into the gambling addiction. <laughs> well, if I just put a little more in, if I just, maybe I'll win, maybe I'll win, maybe I'll win. Well, once you sit back, and especially if you get help and you observe all of this, and you realize there is no winning, that's not the game. And so you want to really calibrate that differently. And Self-reflection is a good place to start. You know, have I been my best self? Do I speak up? Um, do I couch out to somebody else's every need and realize that I'm not getting anything in return? Am I procrastinating as you said? I don't want it to be true. Do I am I avoiding allowing myself to realize that this behavior is true? All of these questions, they're very valid. You know, we don't want to think like you say the the sunken loss, but we don't want to think that we're being abused, and we don't want to think we chose an abuser, and we don't want to think that we didn't see what was really going on. We just, you know, get very fearful of that for our self esteem. But where the real self esteem comes is saying, no. this is not okay with me. I no longer want to feel like this. I no longer want to hear those words. I no longer want to hear those excuses. I am going to look at this differently. That's where you come back to my three must-haves of a healthy adult relationship. Is there equality or the possibility of equality? If you're with a hijackle, no. Is there the possibility of reciprocity? No, because they're so self-involved, they're not going to give to you. Is there the pos- possibility of mutuality, where we it, we recognize each other as complex beings and get very involved with one another and want for the other what they want for themselves, and we want to help facilitate that? No, because you have one person who wants to take it all, and the other person is willing to give it. And that equation is definitely a losing equation. So when you realize that it has nothing to do with you being wrong, it has nothing to do with you being faulty, it has nothing to do with you um, not being nice, not being good, <laughs> you have actually been too nice and too good. Mm-hmm. And you are out of balance. And so let's come back into balance. You know, when I define healthy love, and I did write the definition of it, i um, There is a conscious balance between autonomy and emotional intimacy that is okay with both people, Mm. and it operates on equality, reciprocity, and mutuality, and it's demonstrated by honesty, safety, trust, respect, and reliability so that you can understand what true partnership is. Mm. And if you're not in a true partnership, which means equal, (laughs) um, notice that. You know, if you're always having to lean into the other person's demands, you know, we always want to be leaning into the other person and being interested in them. But if we're leaning into their demands and we are never receiving or so seldom receiving that it's only when they really want something or they don't want to lose us that we get a little more love-bombing and we think of that as receiving, it's important to be able to say no more. No this is not okay with me. I am not pouring more into this vessel with a hole in the bottom. Mm -hmm.
0: I've heard you talk a few times about the idea of a game and winning and losing. And I think about how when two people like this are in a relationship, they're not actually playing the same game. That the hijackal is playing a competitive zero-sum game in which I win, you lose, and the goal of the game is for me to take everything. And And there's this sense that on the playing field, however much territory they've taken up, if you try to reclaim any of it, even if you're just reclaiming your half, they feel like you're taking something from them, and that's where the narcissistic rage comes in. Whereas the partner of a hijackal, the well-meaning good person... Thinks they're playing a cooperative game because that's that's what their narrative about love is. It's yeah. I give to you. You give to me. We're trusting. We're on the same team. And so you have people playing by two different sets of rules. And that's a recipe for disaster. And and sometimes I remind people of that. Like, it sounds like you're playing you're trying to play a cooperative game by a set of rules that involves sharing and it seems like this person's behavior is telling you that they're playing a competitive game in which it's winning and losing, you know, there are people out there who mm-hmm. also enjoy cooperative games and and who get something out of making you happy.
1: Exactly. And and when you absolutely recognize that, you know, I think there's, there's a wonderful quote, and I forget who said it, so I'll paraphrase it, but toxic people, when they say, meet me halfway, think they're standing on the 50-yard line. They don't believe they have anywhere to go. You come to me. You come to me. And that's just so wrong because they're actually in the bleachers somewhere saying, well, I'll meet you halfway, and they have no intention of ever getting up. (laughs) And so their definition of what is um, available is not, um, not so. And so it's important to notice that. Because you may have been bending over backwards to go in their direction to be that nice, good, giving, caring person. And they're just taking advantage of that. They're just sitting by you saying, how much can I get from you? Mm-hmm. Right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so it's important to recognize these patterns. Right.
0: You mentioned a couple of times uh, situations involving co-parenting. And that's that's one of the trickiest mm-hmm. um, when it comes to ending a bad relationship, of course, it's easier the less involved you are. Um, the less of your lives are wrapped up together. And sometimes people have the option of going no contact, which if they can, great. But mm-hmm. there are situations of varying degrees of involvement. And one of the trickiest, as you well know, uh, is when there are children involved. So um, when going no contact isn't an option and there are children involved, how do you help people figure out how to deal with the hijackle they're
1: co-parenting with? Well, first of all, text only. Text and email only, never talk to them. Hmm. Never, never, never talk to them. Because you will always be caught in the dynamic to some degree. So if it's text or email, two things are good. You can look at it for a while before you respond. Secondarily, you can keep all that collateral information for court (laughs) Mm -hmm. because they will expose themselves in the text and email, and that's important. It's truly important. So if you're not caught in by the tone of their voice, by any of those things that you hear on the phone, then text and email. So we just get great information, clearly stated that we can use against them or for ourselves in court because they'll keep upping the ante. They don't care. They're used to the pattern. And so key is it to say, you know, text or email only, and you can use an app like Talking Parents or Our Family Wizard, where everything is uh, there. And you can also, in that app, you can give access to the app to your therapist, your attorney, whomever, who can then look at the actual evidence right there in the in the um, print.
0: Wow, that's a great so resource it's, it's I didn't know about. It's,
1: Mm-hmm. It's really important to get to that place. And they say, well, I need to get to you. Well, what could be more immediate than text? And you can look at it, and is it an emergency or is it a fabricated emergency? Mm-hmm. Then if it deals with the children and their safety or timing and picking up and, and dropping off, you can clearly see that. But if it isn't about that, maybe you don't respond.
0: I think that's tough for a lot of parents because uh, a manipulative parent can easily skew things in a way that makes it look like it's about the kids, and kind of guilt trip the other parent into you don't care about the kids, you don't care about the family, when really it's about doing the hijackles' bidding, just disguised in language yeah. about the kids, and and that that'll get to a caring parent that hurts.
1: Mhm, it will. And it is something that you have to learn. There are many things you have to learn to do differently when you first realize that you're with a hijack call and then you want to move on from that. So very important to know what they are. But one of them is to to do that. You see, you're hooked into the tone of their voice. you're you're uh, hyper vigilant to, are we okay? Uh, are they about to blow? Uh, what are they going to say? Am I okay? All of that. So if you can take the tone of voice out of it, and get them to express. Also know that if you're going to be leaving somebody, know that if you're in a one-party consent state, that means that one party to a in a conversation in a one-party consent state does not have to inform the other they're being recorded so that you can then use that recording. Now, there are several states where that's not the case, but it's really important um, to recognize that, right, to say if I am in a one-party consent state, I actually have my clients wear a voice-activated recording device if they're in one of the one-party consent states and they're concerned about rage or they're concerned about um the ways that they will be spoken to and we can demonstrate the manipulation and we can go through the the text and see what these differences are um and and just recognize that there it is in black and white <laughs> they are endeavoring to manipulate they are endeavoring to play the victim they are endeavoring to Uh, Get your heart to respond. All of the things, they don't mean anything in terms of their uh, love for you. (laughs) They only demonstrate things in terms of their high expectations for themselves. (laughs) But it helps you in the original to be able to clarify that, right? So there are many things that you can do. And in the, I often take people from the deciding point to the, the, decision that they make How if I stay how am I going to behave and what am I going to do and if I decide to go how do I execute my exit and because you need that kind of support because you will fall back into the pattern because of the trauma bonding and if we're talking about an anxious avoidance split you know particularly a hijacker is likely to be disorganized, so they're going to have times when they're anxious, sometimes when they're avoidant, very confusing. But if, if they like to choose anxious, pe- anxious attachment people, because that person is always wanting more, wanting to move towards you, wanting you and needing you, and that makes it. Uh, easy pickings for them, Mm -hmm. right? They can keep moving the goalposts because if you're with a hijackal, you will find that if you do exactly what they say that they they want you to do, they'll move the marker and want something else. It'll never be good enough. Mm
0: -hmm. And that's such a powerful hook for people who just want to please. It's always chasing that maybe they'll be pleased now, maybe they'll be pleased now and really needing to take a step back and look at the pattern. What would you say when um a co-parent who's moved on from a hijackal relationship, when they get into a new relationship, right? So the hijackal's still involved, they're trying to have boundaries, but look out for the kids, then a new partner comes along. How do you help the uh the new healthier relationship kind of withstand the co-parenting arrangement?
1: Strong boundaries, clear language, and a good use of the court system. Mm -hmm. You have to know how to give voice to your boundaries, and boundaries have to be non negotiable. Mm -hmm. And people don't really recognize that. They don't give good thought to their boundaries. They just say something out of heightened emotion. Mm -hmm. And you need to be very, very clear. If this happens, this will happen. And that there is no no chance, it won't happen. So hijackles like to take you to court for forever. You know, obviously, um, because I'm an expert in this, I have experienced it. I had hijackal parents. I married a hijackal. I had to go through the court system. I had to deal with them, with the children, you know, all of that. And so I know a great deal about how how people are Feel and how they're a culture to take this behavior and not do something about it. And so very, very important to recognize that the, it, it's... It's a whole recalibration of your way of thinking about yourself, other people, understanding your values, understanding whether or not you're living by them, Mm -hmm. knowing what the vision for your life is, what you really want to have happen, and know that you deserve to have that happen, and what do I need to do to have that happen, and particularly if you enter into a new relationship with someone you have a reconstruction process, you're going to have a new situation with them, and then you need to clarify what that relationship is, and then how you're going to deal with the hijackle, and how you're going to deal as a united front. You know, it's a very difficult situation to enter into. So be clear that you have dealt with the hijackle before you enter a relationship. People who have left a hijackal relationship are so hungry for some sense of validation and normalcy, although I don't think that exists, I always call it a healthier relationship, um, that they'll enter it too quickly. When people ask me, how long does it take before I can date again? I tell them, we'll start with one trip around the sun. Mm. Do not date until you have healed, Mm. right? Do not date until you have engaged in some recovery process because you're just not ready. You don't have a good calibration of what's healthy and what's not. Mm-hmm. You only know what you never want again and what you're longing for. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's a tough balance to strike with how to be emotionally nourished when you're not in a relationship. You're trying to recover your self-esteem. It's not good to be alone or deprive yourself, but you also don't want to um, enter a new relationship before you're ready. So it seems like that's a time that people really need you. They need their support system and they need those models of what could a healthy relationship look like. And I even recommend to people, you know, there's no harm in thinking about even a TV show or a movie you like that demonstrates healthy relationships because work with any model you can start to internalize, even if it's fictional, at least it's giving an example of
1: something similar to what you want. Yeah. Yeah. Do what you can where you are at this time, but by all means, if you want to shortcut the process, work with someone who's a specialist in this area. And I mean that sincerely. If if you go to someone who doesn't recognize the depth, what this feels like, what it looks like, and how the rebound is experienced— They can't help you to the same degree as someone who specializes in this way. And that's important to do it because you want to move on in a very particular way. And you go through stages of understanding what your part in it was, and of course you're going to be angry, of course you're going to be upset, of course you're going to be lonely, of course you're going to want to go rushing back because it meets your anxious attachment needs. And, you know, basically I talk about the trauma bond is something very simple, is that you are just so used to having your abuser be your comforter, mm-hmm. that that cycle is in, is so ingrained. Mm-hmm. So they abuse me, but then they look like they love me, so they comfort me, and I get totally entrenched in this relationship. So step outside to get someone to help you. You're no longer going to them for comfort. Then you can see the abuse, and you don't get involved, hooked into that hope that this is changing. And I always tell people this, Stephanie. If if you leave the relationship and you don't want to make it final, you you just are not ready to do that. Then you can say, "All right, if you're going to get help, if you're going to make a change, if you really want this relationship, you demonstrate to that to me for a year. And when you have consistently demonstrated the change has lasted and sustained." I will enter therapy with you and we could see if we ever want to have this relationship again. So you have some way of measuring it. Mm -hmm.
0: Again, there's those clear boundaries.
1: Yes, we need clear boundaries, non negotiable boundaries, and they're on your behalf. You know, I am not going to tolerate this behavior. If it happens, we're done. Mm -hmm. Clearly.
0: Um, I want to end on a positive note. Um, anything you have to say about what healthy love is or um, what helps your clients find hope that they can be happy?
1: Well, I think I've given my definition of healthy love, so right. I won't repeat that. But knowing that, that there has to be that conscious balance between autonomy and emotional intimacy. Mm -hmm. And that has to be okay. And if you are not had that ever, ever, ever in your life, you have to build that. So you can do that. That's what working with someone like me helps you do. Mm -hmm. You know, you didn't see it before, now you see it. Now you see it, what do you think would be healthy to do? Mm -hmm. And you can create it. It does require giving yourself the time. To realize what's going on, and then to recover, you know, I always say, you know, when you're recovered, if you if you think of a terrible wound, and you've you've been maybe sliced by a meat cleaver, and it's ugly and it's horrible, and the edges are far apart and it hurts, and and then it gets infected, and you know, you have to deal with it all the time, and you're always aware of the pain. Then you get to the place where can see the edges coming together and then there's less concern and i've taken something for the infection and i can it's still very red and angry but then it gets less red then the edges start to form a a scar and you don't think about it nearly as much Mm -hmm. that's the process but here's how you know when that process is it the healing has occurred Mm -hmm. is when you look at that scar and you no longer see it as where you were wounded; you see it as where you were healed. Mm. I love that. And then you can move on to recalibrate your life. Mm.
0: That's beautiful.
1: All right. So
0: um, you have so many offerings. You have a podcast. You have eBooks. You work with people one-on-one directly. Where can people find you?
1: You can go to my main website for FOR Relationship Help H E L P dot com. And that's important. If you want to join the Emerging Empowered Community, you can do that through the website, or you can go to joinintoday.com. Very, very simple. And, of course, you can find the podcast, Save Your Sanity, Help for Toxic Relationships, wherever you like to get your podcasts. And if you like to get them on my website, you'll see them there. Mm -hmm. Lots of ways to interact. There are four checklists up there for you. There's going to be another one soon, and they're all free. Mm -hmm. Take them. Find out what's going on. There's a, a checklist for Am I with a passive aggressive person? Find that out. Understand what passive aggressive really is, how it's distinguished from, um, something worse, which is toxic, Mm -hmm. right? All toxic people are passive-aggressive, but not all passive-aggressive people are are at that level of what we call a toxic relationship. They're just frustrating and annoying and infuriating. Mm -hmm. Um, So you want to know those things. So it's all there for you. Just go to forrelationshiphelp.com and you'll find it all. You can find everything there.
0: And it sounds like you have resources for anyone in any stage whether they're just beginning to think about maybe this relationship isn't healthy all the way through to that healing stage where they're wanting to reconfigure their notion of what's possible for them and everything in between and you have resources that work for different types of learners and different
1: types of engagement
0: as well so it sounds like a great resource and thank you so much for sharing your wisdom here today
1: you're so welcome. And I wish you well with your podcast and continue doing the good work.
0: Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.